Chancellor Pascal Lamy, the director of the World Trade Organization, uh, fellow guests, and particularly uh, James and Lillian Martin, who inspired the vision of the Oxford Martin School and have led us to be here today. It's a great honor and a privilege to be welcoming you on what I know will be an exciting evening of mind food and also discussion that follows. The aim of the Oxford Martin School is to bring the best people together to work on some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century, and I'm privileged to be its director. Among the very wide range of issues we are focusing on across over 20 disciplines, on those that surface global governance, indeed what has come from our work on poverty, on climate change, on pandemics, on economic crises, on health, and demographics, and in every different area we focus on, is this question of who is going to manage this going into the future. Whose hands are on the global wheel? Who will be taking care for future generations? How do we bring national governments and global governments together to ensure that we navigate this increasingly complex environment, to ensure that future generations inherit an even better world than we have? It's a time of most remarkable opportunity, a time when we could overcome the greatest challenge, but it's also a perilous time, a time when we need wise people at the helm, people that can translate and help us translate powerful ideas into global solutions. And tonight we are most fortunate to have with us the foremost thinker amongst the leaders of the international organizations to provide insights into this question. We are doubly fortunate that we are also having with us tonight the Chancellor of the University, who will introduce Pascal Lamy and be on the panel with him afterwards. At a time when questions are asked about Europe's future, it's wonderful to see in these two former commissioners that there's real life after the European Commission. <laughs> Lord Patton of Barnes, like Pascal Lamy, is one of the very few rare individuals who has been able to combine high political office with deep thinking. This thinking transcends national boundaries. It demonstrates an unwavering commitment to inclusive globalization. The Chancellor studied at what, in my very biased way, I regard as the best of the Oxford colleges being a member, Balliol. But when he studied there in the 60s, it was also amongst the most liberal. He demonstrated his independence of mind then by going on to join the Conservative Party. Not many people from Balliol did that. He became the head of its research department and later its chairman. After being elected the MP for Bath, he held a wide variety of ministerial posts, including education, Northern Ireland, environment, and overseas development. In 1992, he became governor of Hong Kong. And as you know, many governor positions may reg be regarded as a sinecure. But this was the most challenging of posts, handing over China, handing over Hong Kong to China. <laughs> Well, having, having spent time with him in Hong Kong and Beijing, I can attest to this most remarkable thing that both the people in Beijing and Hong Kong believe he made a very good deal for them, and a deal that stuck and proved that itself over time. So that ability was, I think, one of the great, great signs of his high, high intellect, but ability to win trust and think through extremely complicated situations. He was given after that the challenge of the police commission in Northern Ireland, and then at the same time as Pascal was at the commission, became a commissioner, commissioner for foreign affairs at the European Union. 
All that was, of course, but a preparation for the complexities of Oxford, where he's now uh, chancellor. While doing all of this, he's also written an amazing number of books, books which I commend to you, like What's Next? Surviving the 21st Century. He's been a great supporter of the Oxford Martin School and, of course, of Oxford University as a whole. And I'm delighted to invite him to introduce Pascal Lamy. Ian, uh, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, thank you for confirming that there is life after the European Commission. Um, the fact that I'm also now a, a member of the House of Lords proves in addition that there's life after death. <laughs> Just threw that in in case Professor Dawkins was in the audience. <laughs> it's a particular privilege um, and uh, a great personal pleasure to be able to welcome Pascal Lamy to Oxford University to deliver this lecture under the auspices of the Martin School. And I'm delighted that uh, Dr. Martin uh, is with us this evening with his wife. And I'm also pleased that another of our considerable benefactors, Martin Smith, uh, is with us uh, as well, and we owe both of them and others um, a huge debt of gratitude. Uh, Pascal Lamy, as Ian suggested, is one of the greatest international public servants of the last or this generation. Uh, after university and ENA, he became an inspecteur de finance, which of course he still is today. But he's done one or two other things uh, along the road. He worked in the Trésor and for the French finance minister and prime minister. He then became chef de cabinet in Brussels um, for uh, Jacques Delors. Uh, who wasn't as universally popular with the British Prime Minister at the time as perhaps he deserved. And Pascal Lamy certainly ensured that the European Commission was not relegated to a back seat or decommissioned uh, in those days. After a very distinguished period in Brussels, he then went back and helped sought out the odd bank, and then came back, which is when we got to know one another as the European Commissioner for Trade from 1999 to 2004. And we worked, I think I can say, constructively and amicably together, defying all the skeptics who thought it was impossible for a, a French public servant and a Brit to work together without coming to blows. Uh, I think we had a very good relationship and I grew to um, uh, appreciate and uh, admire Pascal's intellect and ability to get things done. He was, I think, the central European figure. He was certainly the central European figure in negotiating 
China's access to the World Trade Organization. Probably uh, one of the most, certainly one of the most important things that's happened to China and to the world in the last few years. And as an occasional bystander, uh, it was uh, enormously entertaining intellectually to watch Pascal and lock horns with Zhu Rongji, who is certainly the most impressive other public servant that I've ever seen in action. Um, Pascal has gone on to be, as you know, the Director General of the World Trade Organization, battling heroically to close the gap between the rhetoric of world leaders and what they're actually prepared to stand up for and get done. And I'm afraid the sad truth is that that gap has grown wider uh, over the years. Pascal is an intellectual, which is permissible in France, though, as you know, it's a capital offense in this country, and a very wise and effective administrator. It's not always the case that intellectuals are good at getting things done, um, but Pascal uh, certainly is. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing what he has to say to us uh, this evening. Uh, it's, as I said, both pleasure and privilege, and I uh, welcome um, him to Oxford with Con Brio, Pascal. Well, uh, Chancellor, dear Chris, uh, Professor Goldin, Darian, ladies and uh, gentlemen, it gives me, of course, a great pleasure to be uh, here in uh, Oxford today to share my views on uh, global governance, uh, an issue on which the uh, Martin School is uh, very active, uh, tackling global future challenges is I understand uh, one of the main focuses of your work in the Martin School, uh, rightly so. Uh, I also believe uh, that it's one of the main uh, challenges, if not the main challenges of our time. Now, we obviously uh, live uh, in a world of uh, ever-growing interdependence and uh, interconnectedness. In fact, uh, our interdependence has uh, grown beyond uh, anyone's uh, imagination. Economic and financial shocks uh, spread faster than ever before. Uh, with the recent uh, economic crisis, we've discovered uh, that the collapse of one part of an economy uh, can trigger a chain reaction across the whole globe uh, for the first time in history. We've discovered with the climate uh, crisis that uh, our planet is uh, an indivisible whole. Uh, with the food crisis, we've discovered that we are dependent on each other's production and policies to feed ourselves. And with the uh, flu epidemic uh, that uh, 
speedy international cooperation can be vital. So the scope of the challenges the world is facing has uh, changed uh, profoundly uh, in the past decades, more profoundly, I suspect, than uh, we fully understand. And the world of today is uh, virtually unrecognizable uh, from the world in which we lived uh, a generation ago. Just look at the way trade is taking place. Thanks to lower transport prices, uh, communication, information technologies, it now uh, costs less to ship a container from uh, Marseille to Shanghai than to move it uh, across Europe. Production chains have become truly global, uh, with uh, companies uh, locating various stages of the production process in the most cost-efficient markets. The most striking example of this globalization of the production chains is uh, Apple, uh, whose uh, famous uh, iPad is uh, designed in the US, manufactured with uh, components from Japan, Korea, and several other Asian countries, and uh, assembled in uh, China uh, by a company uh, from Chinese Taipei. Uh, nowadays, uh, most products uh, are not made in the UK or made in France. They are, in fact, made in the world. And the frontier between uh, domestic trade and inter-national trade is blurring. The very notion of nations trading with each other has uh, become questionable. Now, on the govern governance side, uh, for sure, over the past uh, 70 years, uh, we've uh, slowly constructed a legal uh, institutional framework to try and manage closer economic integration, whether at the regional or the global level. And of course, the WTO is one bit of this uh, scheme with responsibility uh, for the governance of global trade relations. Yet, uh, with uh, the world uh, becoming uh, ever more interconnected and challenge becoming more and more global, uh, governance uh, remains to a large extent local. And the discrepancy between the reality of today's interdependence, the challenges that result from it, and the capacity of governments to agree politically on how to deal with them is uh, increasingly striking. For the international system uh, is founded on the principles and politics of national sovereignty. The Westphalian uh, order of uh, 1648, some time ago, uh, remains very much alive in the uh, international architecture of today. In the absence of a global government, global governance uh, results from the action of sovereign states. It is inter-national, between nations. In other words, uh, global governance is the 
globalization of local governance. But it doesn't suffice uh, to establish informal groupings or specialized international organizations, each of them being member-driven, as we say, uh, to ensure a coherent uh, and efficient approach to address the problem, global problems of our time. In fact, the Westphalian order is a challenge in itself. And the recent crisis has uh, demonstrated that brutally. Local politics have taken over, uh, have taken the upper hand over addressing global issues. Governments are today too busy dealing with domestic issues to dedicate uh, sufficient uh, attention, sufficient energy to multilateral uh, issues and negotiations, be they trade negotiations or uh, climate negotiations. Now, I see four uh, main challenges uh, for uh, global governance today. Uh, the first one is uh, leadership. Leadership uh, meaning the capacity to embody a vision and inspire action in order to create political momentum. Who is the global leader? Should it be a superpower? Uh, should it be a group of national leaders selected by whom? Or should it be some sort of international organization? The second challenge uh, is uh, the one of efficiency. And by efficiency, I mean a capacity to mobilize resources, to solve the problems in the international sphere, to bring about concrete, visible results for the benefit of the people. And the main challenge here is that uh, this uh, Westphalian order uh, gives a premium to naysayers who can block decisions, thereby impeding results. The ensuring viscosity of international decision-making uh, puts into question the efficiency of the international system. The third challenge, as I see it, is coherence, uh, for the international system is based on specialization. Each international organization focuses on a limited number of issues. Uh, we, in the World Trade Organization, deal with trade, uh, the international labor organizations with labor issues, the World Meteorological Organization with meteorology, and so uh, the list continues. And I think it's a fact that uh, the UN is not really uh, overarching and uh, coherence-producing, assuming uh, this was uh, the initial intention when the UN were created. The last and probably uh, more compelling challenge that I see in global governance is uh, the one of legitimacy. Uh, and this is because legitimacy is, in my view, uh, 
intrinsically linked to proximity, uh, to a sense of uh, togetherness, and by togetherness I mean the shared feeling of belonging to a community. And this feeling, which is generally strong at the local level or at the national level, uh, tends to weaken significantly as a distance to nearby power uh, system grows. Uh, it finds its roots in common myths, in a common history, in a collective cultural heritage, uh, which is why it's no surprise that taxation or redistribution uh, remain mostly local. Now, if we try to uh, observe reality, uh, which I believe is a reasonably safe way of checking your theory, uh, there is one place where attempts to deal with these challenges have been made and where new forms of uh, governance, supranational governance, have been uh, tested uh, for the last 60 years, and that's Europe. The European construction uh, remains today uh, the most ambitious experiment in supranational governance uh, ever attempted. It is the story of a desired, delineated, uh, organized interdependence between its member states. So uh, let's check how has this uh, endeavor coped with these uh, challenges I've just uh, briefly outlined? First, on the question of efficiency, uh, Europe scores, in my view, rather highly. Uh, thanks to the primacy of uh, EU law over national law, thanks to the work of the European Court of Justice in uh, ensuring enforcement and respect for the rule of law, thanks to a clear articulation between the Commission, uh, the European Parliament, uh, the European Court of Justice. It also scores reasonably nicely uh, from the point of view of uh, redistribution uh, policies, a sort of test of collective uh, action. If you take the example of the European structural funds and cohesion uh, policies, they've overall uh, played a key role in the uh, development of uh, European regions, member states, and helped at the time uh, to cope with the uh, competitive challenge of the creation of the uh, internal market. Now, the picture is more nuanced if uh, we look at the issue of leadership. I think Europe has had a relatively good record in terms of leadership uh, as long as uh, the leadership of the European Commission was accepted. Uh, it is the Commission who pushed through the creation of the internal market in the early 90s, of the Euro, in the late 90s, uh, to successors, in my view, even, not, even if not irreversible, of uh, the European uh, construction project. But today, uh, leadership is uh, blurred, 
by this uh, everyday competition uh, between the President of the Commission and the President of the European Council. This competition does not only affect uh, Europe's leadership, it also weakens the coherence of European actions, and it also affects, I can tell you, uh, the manner in which uh, Europe is perceived abroad. Finally, uh, legitimacy uh, is the area which, uh, in which, in my view, uh, Europe uh, scores uh, less well. Uh, the reality uh, shows a growing distance between uh, European public opinions and the European project. One could have expected that the European institutional setup with growing powers entrusted to the European Parliament would have resulted in a greater legitimacy. But uh, this is contradicted by the declining numbers uh, of participation in uh, elections to the European Parliament. Uh, Europe continues to be uh, seen as uh, distant, far away from the everyday lives and uh, everyday concerns of citizens. And despite constant efforts to adjust, to adapt uh, European institutions to democratic requirements, and that has been done for the last 50 years, there has been no uh, resulting uh, democratic uh, spark. Euro skepticism is on the rise, and I'm talking of Europe at large, uh, often uh, encouraged by politicians who are tempted to use Europe as a scapegoat for the difficult decisions they have to take at home, a fortiori in uh, times of crisis. So, legitimacy uh, remains a litmus test for Europe. Now, as we all know, uh, these are not easy times for the European integration process with doubts emerging about its uh, future course. Uh, I nevertheless uh, believe that it uh, teaches us valuable lessons uh, for global governance. And let me now try and uh, lay out a few pragmatic ideas for a possible way uh, uh, in order to try and bridge this global uh, governance deficit. First, uh, the European experience offers valuable lessons both in terms of uh, institutions and tools. In terms of uh, institutions, uh, the European integration process shows that supranational governance can work. Not extremely well, but can work. Uh, many difficulties, uh, but the truth also is that it's highly unlikely that what was done at European level uh, could be replicated as such at international level. The European uh, integration uh, paradigm was developed under very specific conditions of uh, temperature and pressure. It was shaped by uh, the geographical and uh, historical heritage of a European continent uh, devastated uh, by uh, two uh, world wars and a genocide. Hence, a very high, strong 
aspiration uh, for peace, for stability, for prosperity. But it's also my firm conviction, however, that one could find a way to better articulate uh, three elements of governance at the global level uh, through what I have previously called the triangle of coherence, uh, which address uh, leadership, legitimacy, and efficiency. Uh, on the one side of the triangle lies today the G20, replacing the former G8 and providing some political leadership, uh, some political direction, and some coherence. The second side of the tri triangle is the United Nations, which can provide a framework for global legitimacy through uh, proper accountability. And on the third side lie uh, member-driven international organizations providing expertise and uh, specialized uh, inputs, uh, be they uh, rules, which is the WTO business, policies, which is the World Bank business, uh, or programs, uh, which is the UNDP business. And I think this triangle of global governance is uh, slowly emerging. Bridges uh, linking the G20 to international organizations and the UN system have started to be built. I myself participate in uh, G20 meetings alongside the heads of a number of other uh, international organizations. The presidency of the G20 has uh, organized uh, regular briefings at the uh, UN uh, General Assembly Specific sessions uh, dedicated to trade have been uh, regularly organized during uh, G20 summits, uh, giving us at the WTO some, not all, but some of the uh, political impetus we need. For example, the political backing of the G20 allowed me at the dawn of the uh, 08 financial crisis uh, to launch a new strengthen monitoring of trade policy development, uh, which has so far, so far, uh, proved a uh, useful and even a powerful uh, tool to contain uh, inevitable uh, protectionist uh, pressures uh, during time of uh, severe economic and social crisis. Now, in terms of tools, I believe that the uh, European experience of uh, Rulemaking, uh, transparency, peer review offers uh, interesting avenues for the global level. Uh, for instance, uh, peer review uh, appears to me as a sort of efficient Westphalian tool of governance in that it sort of leverages uh, the pride of sovereign nations when reviewed by their peers. Second uh, idea uh, in trying to move uh, forward uh, is, of course, the importance of regionalism. Regional integration processes, which uh, permit a progressive familiarization with uh, supranationality, should, in my view, be uh, further encouraged. Uh, regional integration also uh, allows to address the questions of our time at a level where there is this uh, 
affectio societatis, which in many ways is missing at the global level. Uh, at a level where uh, the feeling of uh, belonging, of uh, togetherness, uh, is, uh, let's say, more solid. And regional integration uh, then uh, represents the essential intermediate step uh, between the national and the global governance level. Uh, Central America, Eastern Africa, uh, the ASEAN uh, are, I believe, uh, good examples of this in the world of today. But of course, uh, regionalism is not the magical recipe. It uh, may suffer from the same difficulties as global governance, sort of falling victim of uh, nationalistic tendencies that drag the level of ambition down. And we've seen this in uh, regional integration processes uh, recently uh, as a consequence of uh, the economic and social crisis. Now, finally, and that's uh, a big challenge, uh, but in my view, a real indispensable issue to cope with, uh, which is the uh, question of values. Institutions alone uh, be there, uh, regional or international, uh, cannot do the trick. Our experience with uh, global governance to date, uh, I think, shows it. A successful governance system uh, requires not only an institutional machinery, but also a common objective and shared values. Uh, back to Europe, the success uh, of the European monetary integration process is the result of the coming together of shared values and a common goal. It's the combination of these two elements that led to the establishment of an institutional machinery as far as the purely monetary field was concerned. Uh, and the value that underpins the governance of the euro system is uh, price stability. This uh, creation of the uh, euro and the sort of identification of what is the basement of this governance system took 30 years uh, between the uh, Werner uh, report of 1969 and the uh, Delors report on the Economic and Monetary Union. And as a result of that, the institutional uh, structure followed uh, quickly uh, with the creation of the European Central Bank, which is uh, certainly the most federal of all uh, European institutions. And that was decided in three weeks only. But of course now today, uh, Europe realizes that the monetary integration cannot function without a deeper economic and political institutional integration. We now know that a common currency uh, is uh, not enough. Uh, it requires other stronger uh, common European uh, economic policies. And at the same time, the existing institutions cannot compensate uh, for the lack of uh, shared values and common goals uh, with uh, respect to this much needed further European economic integration. And in my sense, absent a proper discussion, not just about 
techniques, tools, not just about the technocratic side of this, but about the political side of this, as it moves uh, together value-based uh, issues. Uh, without that, I deeply believe that uh, Europe will uh, continue to limp. So what are we uh, missing uh, in the case of global governance? We already have a set of institutional machineries in some areas, but these are not underpinned by a sufficiently strong set of core principles and values. And this is, uh, in my view, uh, the area where uh, global governance uh, really uh, falls short. What's lacking today is a platform of common values uh, at the international level, uh, in the name of which actions would be taken. The question of uh, social inequalities, for instance, is not embodied in the UN vision uh, as designed uh, in the 1950s. Our world, uh, I believe, needs this platform of common values, uh, which of course uh, would not be shared uh, only by the West, but also today by the rest. And without a basic agreement of this kind, I believe uh, it doesn't really make sense uh, to talk about global public goods. Uh, public goods, the notion of a public good, the acceptance of a public good, the acceptance of a governance that preserves or establishes this public good is uh, necessarily based uh, on common values. And if we are to efficiently address uh, today's global challenges, which in uh, many cases are related to the defense, promotion, protection of global public goods, we need to share a collective sense of uh, values for a better global governance. In fact, uh, we probably need a new declaration of uh, global rights and responsibilities. And I can see that uh, uh, in the growing importance of value-based issues uh, at the WTO itself. Uh, rules that impact trade uh, are there uh, when they're established by sovereign nation states less and less to uh, protect producers and more and more to protect consumers. Issues such as uh, trade and health, uh, trade and the environment, those are issues where values play an important role uh, for the notion that you have to address a risk has to do with your ontological scale of uh, what is good and what is bad. A risk scale is in many ways very much linked to a value system. And as a traditional obstacle to trade such as uh, quantitative restrictions or tariffs are decreasing, regulatory discrepancies uh, are the ones that matter today and probably will uh, matter more in the future. 
and these discrepancies uh, risk uh, becoming uh, an impediment to uh, market opening and uh, getting the benefits of economies of scale. And the world of global trade is to some extent uh, where Europe uh, was in the 70s. No more tariffs, but not yet an internal market. Now, getting there, uh, whether through harmonization or mutual recognition, whichever bit of the toolbox you use, uh, will for sure imply a higher level of trust. And trust has to be built on a bedrock of common values. I've said uh, before, before other audiences, that I had the chance in my uh, professional life, which uh, Chris uh, kindly summed up, of uh, working at uh, three different uh, levels of governance, which I can compare to uh, the three states of mass. The national level, which in my view uh, represents the solid state, uh, the European level, which is uh, liquid, and uh, now the uh, international level, uh, which is uh, more like the gaseous mass. Now, the challenge of uh, global governance today is to try to move from this uh, current gaseous state to something more solid. But, but because of this uh, fundamental uh, legitimacy deficit of global governance, uh, I do not believe, and I should say I do not believe anymore, that the solution is to uh, globalize local problems. I believe uh, the solution lies in localizing global problems, to make them uh, more palatable to citizens in order to reinforce the sentiment of uh, togetherness I referred to. Now, this requires uh, substantial transformations of uh, the way uh, politics happen, uh, but it also requires a strong leadership, uh, not only at the international level, uh, but above all, where it really matters for international action to take place, which is at the national level. There is no international leadership in a Westphalian order without national leadership. And of course, such leadership uh, is uh, easier in smaller and homogeneous uh, countries than in bigger and diverse ones. But, but the stakes of strong leadership uh, are the same for all. So all in all, uh, in my view, uh, this leadership issue is the most uh, pressing issue of global governance uh, today. And it's uh, no coincidence that uh, Chris, uh, in his introduction, has uh, said the same thing. Uh, in other words, this uh, confirms what you said, Chris. Uh, although we belong to different cultural origins, uh, the way we're thinking together in the same direction has always amazed me, and I'm 
pleased to say that tonight with you. Thank you.